Hello and welcome to another episode of Sounds Like Comics, the podcast devoted to all things comics in movies and TV. I'm Luke from That Film Stew. My co-host today is Damien. Hey, how are you going? Welcome back to the podcast. Today's topic, The Rocketeer, the 1991 action-adventure movie. This is your warning, we will be talking spoilers. I'm actually very happy to be talking about this movie and this character. I, I love this film. It's when amazing. I was planning on an episode all about the Rocketeer, I thought of you straight away. Yes. Thank you. It's okay. <laughs> so the Rocketeer then, first appearances, where did it all start? Okay, the Rocketeer is a fictional superhero appearing in American comic books originally published by Pacific Comics. The Rocketeer was created by writer-artist Dave Stevens. The character first appeared in 1982 and is a homage to Saturday matinee serial heroes from the 1930s through the 1950s. The Rocketeer's secret identity is Cliff Saccord, a stunt pilot who discovers a mysterious jetpack that allows him to fly. His adventures are set in Los Angeles and New York in 1938. Dave Stevens gave them a retro nostalgic feel, influenced by the King of the Rocketmen and Commander Cody movie serials, both from Republic Pictures as well as the pin-up diva, Betty Page. So audiences in 91, the easiest comparison would have been Indiana Jones. Yes. And didn't Stevens actually work on those movies? He did. He storyboarded, I think, Temple of Doom? From memory? I'm, okay. I'll look that up. I'll confirm that. And in the comics as well, it was slightly different to what we get here in the movie. Like I read something about... Doc Savage, the Man of Bronze, being the scientist that created the jetpack. Yes. The, the I guess the two biggest distinctions between the comic and the movie, as you said, um, Doc Savage did create the jetpack in the comic books. In the movies, they couldn't get the rights to use the Doc Savage character, so they changed that character to Howard Hughes. Right. Aviation he, guru. And here we have Locke from Lost. We do have Locke, Mr. Terry O'Quinn. That's right, Terry O'Quinn. But even in the comics, though, I think even though it's clearly Doc Savage, he's never referred to by name. He's not. But he's drawn yes. as Doc Savage. And I think they included a few other pulp heroes in the Rocketeer comics as well without actually stating who they are. Yes, they um, definitely featured other influences and characters from the era. Um, Dave Stevens was a huge fan of the Art Deco and the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And The Rocketeer is his love letter to that time. I've not read too many of the Dan Stevens comics. The The series I gravitated towards was The Rocketeer, Cargo of Doom, Mark Wade, and Chris Samney. Yes. And I'm a fan of those two as a creative team. And that's why I picked up the book. And at some point, there's dinosaurs with jetpacks, which is never, <laughs> never a bad thing. <laughs> I think uh, what you're referring to is a, a miniseries published by IDW. They started publishing new stories of the Rocketeer by different creators, because unfortunately Dave Stevens passed in 2008. Um, the estate of the Rocketeer now continues with new stories from in new media, um, as we saw at, recently at San Diego, with the trailer being released... That's right. I was going to get to that later in the legacy section, but yeah, we're getting a Disney Junior animated series. I think it's the same title as the comic and the movie, The Rocketeer, only it's following a young girl named Kit Saccord, and she's 
a descendant of the original Rocketeer. Sounds fun. And Billy Campbell plays her dad, only he's not playing Cliff's Accord. It's, he's got a different a different name, which I think is a bit odd. I thought they would have, you know, they got the guy from the movie to play the same character again, but he's got a different name. Okay. Tony or something. I, I can't, can't remember his name. But the, the target audience or the age group, they're looking at like seven and up. Oh, the, so trailer, the trailer looked like a lot of fun. It does, but they're obviously skewing a lot younger than the movie. Development for The Rocketeer started as far back as 1983 when Steven sold the film rights to Disney. They intended to change the trademark helmet design. And it was uh, Disney CEO Michael Eisner who wanted a straight NASA-typed helmet. You know, it's more aerodynamic, the woman getting the comic in the movie. Mm. They wanted it to be more circular. Okay. More like Which, a bullet. Yeah, but this this is better. Like what we get in the movie is way better. Uh, it was director Joe Johnston. You may know him from Honey Eyes from the Kids, Jumanji, Captain America: The First Avenger. He was the one that convinced the studio otherwise. Johnston also had to convince Disney to let him cast unknown actor Billy Campbell in the lead role. Yes, it was a good good casting call though. I thought because usually they won't want to go with an unknown. They want a sure a sure. By a bet or a known actor. I think having Timothy Dalton, James Bond as your bad guy, yes. you've got your known actor there. Like Jennifer Connolly, she'd done a fair few things by this point. Labyrinth, so she was known. I think having an unknown play Cliff's Accord was the right move. Absolutely the right move. Yeah. The visual effects sequences were created and designed by Industrial Light and Magic and were supervised by animation director Wes. Takashi, his efforts include animating the time travel sequences for all three films in the Back to the Future trilogy, as well as animating the boy on the moon in the DreamWorks logo. Okay, there you go. The last episode we did together was Howard the Duck, and I was talking about before how I was surprised by the connective tissue between Howard and the Rocketeer. Obviously, we've got ILM doing the effects. But this feeling like Indiana Jones, you've got George Lucas there. I did read that Harrison Ford was considered for the role. Didn't audition for Cliff's Accord's role, but they wanted, they thought about getting him in to do it. Could you imagine if that too was... Similar. Too, too similar. Too similar. It's it, Indiana Jones with a, with a jetpack. Yeah, pack. exactly <laughs> right. And they could have put that on the poster. Maybe that had uh, had them do better at the box office. But, you know, mentioning Harrison Ford... They looked at pretty much every male of a certain age in Hollywood. Kevin Costner, Matthew Mondaine, they were the first actors considered for the role. They passed. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, maybe they were unavailable. They went to Emilio Estevez, Bill Paxton, Dennis Quaid, Kurt Russell, Johnny Depp. Many, many actors they went to. But fortunately, Johnston got his way and we had... The right Billy man, Campbell, the yep. right man in the role. It's interesting that talking about other actors that were considered for the role, I, I read that Vincent D'Onfrio turned it down. Oh, really? Could you imagine? Yeah, that'd the be kingpin. Different. The kingpin was the Rocketeer, and that'd have been what six years before Men in Black. Yes. Yeah, more connective tissue there. Another <laughs> movie that we talked <laughs> about did, on this very did. podcast. Yes. When did you first see the Rocketeer? It would have been on. TV 
as a kid, and if I'm honest, I found it boring. Wow. As a kid, found this movie boring, not enough happened. Looking at the the numbers at the box office, this had a budget of between 35 and 40 million. It had a profit of 46.7. Slim, slim margin there. And I can see why. I think the the marketing for this movie now, when I look back on it, was fantastic. You know, like it it looked like what Dan Stevens was putting on the page. It was a lot of that art deco, like the it was very stylized. It was. But it didn't sell an exciting movie. And I think that could have played into why it didn't get mass appeal. But the movie itself, like I don't know, he just comparing it to Indiana Jones, but it's not as good as like Indiana Jones. It's it's a classic. Like there's a lot of fun and adventure, and this movie it's a lot slower. Coming back to it as an adult, I've got a whole new appreciation for this movie. But as a kid, it didn't do a lot. What about yourself? I saw this at the movies when it first came out. Um, I had a, a friend getting touched at the last second going, I've just scored a double pass to the Rocketeer. You want to come and see it? It's like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, free film. I was up for that. Um, I didn't really know what it was. I must admit, I wasn't familiar with the comics. It just was it looked like a cool film. Um, so we went along to, to the screening. When we got there, the, the friend had actually wrangled two tickets to a corporate event. Right. So we were actually in, in the screening that we weren't supposed to be oh, in. Oh, that's we, cool. we didn't work for the company. So we had to sit through, I think, half an hour of like jargon and maybe the CEO addressing all these employees before the film started. <laughs> so we sort of like a bit awkward in our chairs. But, you know, once that passed, we were able to enjoy the show. And uh, I, I had a good time. It was a lot of fun at the, at the, the, on the big screen. I think um, it, it definitely made an impression on me when I saw it. And I think I've seen it several times since then, and I've enjoyed it every time. Probably appreciate it more and more, actually, as time goes by. When this movie debuted back in 1991, <laughs> the, the slot that it was released, it really was between a rock and a hard place. It was, this, it was released on a weekend that was being dominated by Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and City Slickers. And then just a few weeks later... Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Whoa. So it's, it's easy to see how it went under the radar. It decimated any chance yep. of the movie rebounding. Just a little bit more of the box office numbers. I've said already we're looking at a $46 million, uh, profit at the box office. If you're going to compare it to similar movies around that time, we had Dick Tracy, $103 million, and Batman, 251 million so if you're disney and you're wanting to compete with warner brothers i think it was touchstone which is still disney isn't it um dick tracy if you're looking to compete and you're releasing the rocketeer it just it went nowhere near it didn't the do other it. movies it didn't perform at that time wow that's it's interesting when you compare it to the other other films of the time like what sort of bank they were doing and uh it's understandable why they were disappointed with the outcome. This movie, though, it's set in 1938. It is. And I think because of that, when you watch it today, it it doesn't feel like you're watching an old movie. Like, if you watch Batman 89, 
that movie has aged. It feels like it's of that particular time. Whereas this has got more of a timeless quality to it. You're spot on, actually. It's so much so that you don't notice that you're watching a film from the 90s. You're just watching a film yeah. set in 1938. So it's aged very well, and we'll get to the costumes later. But when you see the design of the Rocketeer, he's got the flight jacket, he's got the helmet, he's got the gun, the jetpack. It's each, spot on. It just looks perfect. It's like if they were to make that today... You'd want them to make no changes. Like over the years, there's been talks of a reboot. At one point, they had a working title of The Rocketeers, okay. which would have been a reboot. But you'd want them to keep that design. Like we mentioned that cartoon earlier. In that, she's, I think, a silver helmet, but it's the same shape. And she's got a pink flight jacket, which, you know, she's a little kid, a little girl. Uh, but the design's still there. Well, when the design is a classic, you don't have to mess with it, it, it stays. And that's like Batman always looks like Batman. They're going to tweak it, but it always looks like Batman. Just reading into this, I mean, Billy Campbell, he really wanted this part. He read, he read all the comics and he, he was ready, ready to audition. He even had his hair cut to look just like the character in the comics. He did. I, I did read that. He was, a, I think he was a studying design. And when he was, knew he was auditioning for the role, he got the graphic novels and made himself look like the character. I find as well, when you have an actor play a character and outside of that role, you're not too familiar with them. When, like when I see Billy Campbell in this movie, he only looks like Cliff's Accord, the Rocketeer. And I love that. Yes. I mean, as an actor, I'm sure we'd have liked to have gotten more work, but me, the audience, I like that he looks just like that character. I think, though, if, if that's his legacy and he's only ever known as being Cliff's Accord and the Rocketeer, that's not a bad legacy to have. And outside of coming back for the Disney Junior show, like, I'm sure he's done things. Oh, in fact, I think I read something about he was in an episode or a couple of episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So he clearly got more work <laughs> other than I think a few the of Rocketeer. Them, a few of the, the actors, the, the supporting cast, got work in DS9. Including tiny Ron Taylor. But, whoa, we'll get to him. Yes. Let's first talk. Jennifer Connolly is Jenny Blake. You'd know this from the comics. I only know from researching it, but apparently in the comics, she was called Betty Page. She was. She was Betty Page with a Y. So uh, a tribute to Betty Page with an IE. Who apparently who was... was a real life friend of Dan Stevens. Well, when The Rocketeer came out and the character Betty in the comic looked exactly like Betty Page, it... it created a bit of a resurgence of interest in her. Right, so, okay. And she reached out to Dave Stevens and they did become friends. Oh, on the back in the of late, that. Yeah, in later years. They were, they were, they were good friends. Um, to do with the film, though, the real Betty Page did not want her name to be used for the film, so they changed to Jenny. Yeah, well, do you know why that is? She just didn't want her name. She, she, I guess Betty Page is her brand. Right, okay. So why, why would you have someone else playing your brand? But Especially then, when you're still around. You're, I guess it's different if you're... Cause it's like she's been drawn into a comics. Yeah. Into the comics. Sorry. Oh, okay. You know, I get that. I mean, they did a movie about Betty Page years ago, didn't they? But that would have been after her passing. Yes. I can't remember who the cast in that. Yeah. I thought Jennifer Connelly, I'd seen... I think she was in Labyrinth, but I hadn't seen that until afterwards. I think the first time I might have seen her was in this film. Actually. Oh, wow. That's yeah. cool. So I, I thought she was... Very, very good in the role, um, playing alongside um, Timothy Dalton with ease. 
Like there was a real chemistry between those two, like on screen. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And he played Neville Sinclair, and his character was loosely bottled after Errol Flynn, who was suspected as being a Nazi spy. That's for real, isn't it? That's that's the a real that's thing that people what think. The internet says. Yes. <laughs> I've but, not come across it until doing prep for this, but yeah. apparently he was suspected to. And Dalton very much is playing a Robin Hood type character who you would associate with Errol Flynn. He's splendid. He's, he's dashing and splendid in the role. He, he seems to be enjoying himself in that role a lot. And when you get to the third act, there's a scene and it makes reference to doing his own stunts. It and does. apparently that's a call back to his time as James Bond, where he at did. the time he was the only actor to have done his own stunts, whereas Daniel Craig, I'm sure, has gone on to do many more stunts. You'd certainly think so by the amount of times that Craig gets injured. <laughs> he's, he's doing his own stunts. But yeah, I thought Timothy Dalton was just brilliant in this. I'd say his vision is... <laughs> I'd say his villain is almost delicious. Like he's he's chewing up the scenery. He's he got the pencil mustache. Yeah, he's great in this. We've got Alan Arkin as Peavy. Yes. I I again didn't know who Alan Arkin was when I saw this film. I've since come to appreciate him a lot as an actor. I Everything know him, he's in, he's yeah, brilliant. He's, he's brilliant. always great. Yeah. I know him from modern cinema. And I thought he was one of these guys that just came to it late. Well, no. maybe like a theatre background. Yep. But seeing him in this, but I've like longer hair than I'm used to. He's always got a shaved head in anything that I watch him in. Mm. But he's he's really good in this. He's excellent. He yeah. really is. He's a good PV. There's a couple of people like... In fact, you know what? The performances in this movie is very good. They're solid. Yep. I think the interesting thing about Alan Arkin's PV is in the film, he's a much more likeable character. In right. the comic book, he's actually a bit more uh, sour and bitter and a bit grumpy, a lot more grumpier than he is. So he's more like a father figure yes, in definitely, this. definitely. Yeah. And we've already mentioned Terry O'Quinn as Howard Hughes. Again, Terry O'Quinn with hair. It's quite quite a bizarre thing to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, like I, my first known exposure to him was as John Locke in Lost. Same. No, sorry. It was Millennium. Oh right, I didn't see him in that. Yeah, so he was he was in X Files, a guest star, like, and then later on he a main role in Millennium, and then I knew him from that already, and then loved him in in Lost as well. He really is fantastic in Lost. Yeah, definitely can't can't fault his performance in that. And we've talked about already how his Howard Hughes was a substitute to Doc, Doc Savage. Savage. Yep. Okay, um, we need to talk about Lothar because I was watching this movie and I didn't quite know what I was seeing. <laughs> this is a really weird character. So we've got tiny Ron Taylor as Lothar. He was designed to resemble actor Rondo Hatton. His facial features, he's displayed as having a exaggerated or extended jaw, large nose and a long cranium. I'm watching this guy and it's like, Freaking me out. I'm like, am I looking at a real person here or is this somebody wearing a mask? Mm. Turns out it is somebody wearing a mask designed. Oh, who did it? I think it was Rick Baker who worked on Men in Black. But it is just weird because his mouth doesn't quite move right. No, it doesn't, does it? But And I thought, is this just someone like with a like a like a odd looking gruff face that they've cast purely for how he looks? Or is this a mask? And as I'm watching it, it's like, yeah, no, this is this is definitely a mask and I guess the having him look like Rondo Hatton is a homage to the movie The Brute Man from 1946. 
It's a film noir horror thriller starring Hatton as the creeper. Yes. So it's a it's a choice they've gone for here where he's you know, with it being the type of movie that it is, they're wanting to have nods to cinema, you know, of the past. The character is straight from the comic. It's in the second Dave Stevens Rocketeer. And does it serial. look like this? It looks exactly like he does in the film. Did it creep you out? It, it <laughs> did a bit, but it's meant to because Dave Stevens was pulling the influence from, yeah. from the Creeper. I, I guess it took me a while to realise what I was seeing. And that's what was creeping me out because it's like, is that real? So they did a really good job with it. But again, like there's a few scenes later on when you see him where his mouth's just not quite moving the, right. The dialogue's not, not sinking with the, the, the lips. No. But he's an interesting character. No, he's, like, he's, he, the, he's the brute force. It really is. It reminded me of Jaws mm. in Bond. Oh, that's, that's the same vibe I got from Moonraker. Yeah. Did you know that Dan Stevens has a cameo in the I, movie? I do. I did read that. He plays the man in the test flight movie who has the rocket pack strapped to his back. Goes boom. He Thought does. It's pretty cool if you're he, the creator of this character and then you get to wear the jetpack yourself and explode on screen. It was a prototype. There was a um, flashback sequence sort of showing the development of the rocket pack and how it shouldn't be used. I like it when they do that, when they chuck the creators in there. They've done it a couple of times in the X-Men movies with Chris Claremont where they'll give him a scene. I like that. Yeah, same. The costume, we've praised it already. We should really give credit then to Marilyn Vance Stracker. She's the one that designed the the look of the costume. I mean, admittedly, it is what we get on the page, but like the it's a very faithful adaption, and she did a great job. And I was looking at a back catalogue, what else has she worked on? And I'm seeing things like Fast Times at Regiment High, Untouchables, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, so they're definitely getting her to dress people of a time, like to resemble the era that the movie's been based in. And she's also gone on to do Pretty Woman, Mystery Men, Breakfast Club. Okay. But most notably, it is this movie, The Rocketeer and The Untouchables, that she's remembered for. I do have here that The Rocketeer won the Saturn Award for Best Costumes in 92. Oh, cool. Rightly yeah. so. Rightly so. I mean, it is a fantastic design and the... From the page to the screen is just flawless. We've talked about the tone of this movie already. See, it really is looking at replicating, like Indiana Jones. It's hard not to reference that movie, but it's the Saturday morning serials, isn't it? You know, it'll be like a small chapter to be continued, to be cliffhanger, and it plays like one of those movies, but on the big screen. It does. The, it lifts a lot from the comic, the the tone and the, the timing. Um, the comic, if you, if you read the... You can read it in IDW's reprint of The Rocketeer. It's a serialised comic that does read kind of like a graphic novel when you read it all together, but it does have those beats where it's like cliffhanger, then the next part, then the cliffhanger, and the timing. You could probably pace maybe about six cliffhangers in the film if you break it down down that way. It'd be be interesting if they put out a cut of the movie Mm. with those breaks, wouldn't it? Mm. This movie, it's just even now, it's... I don't think it's got the recognition that it that it should. Do you know what I mean? Like I, they've put anniversary editions out on DVD and Blu-ray. You don't even get a trailer. Like it is just the movie, and that's it. I think it definitely has its its core fan group and those that know of it, love it. You know, it's it's not being pushed to a wider audience. And if you're looking outside of the comics, other than this movie, 
you know, as, as this year, 2019, we're getting a Disney Junior cartoon. Yeah, that and might put the film back in the spotlight. We but might. that's it. That's it for The Rocketeer so far. Like from 91 to 2019, it's, it's a huge, huge gap. The special effects in this movie, it, again, it's, it's fitting those serialized shorts. But the effects on the whole do work and, you know, the explosions. But I think because they're going for a particular style and time, I think what we're getting on screen, it works. Like if they were going to do a modern Rocketeer movie, it would be different to what we're getting here. It would be. It would be seamless. Like I think the effects are very much of the time. There are times when he's flying with the pack on and it's you can see how they've done the effect, sort of like a la Superman, Christopher Reeves flying, that, that sort of, you can see. Oh, but I could watch trick. Christopher Reeves fly all day. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he's got to be up there. He's been one of the best. Well, the, the byline for Superman was, you will believe a man can fly. And I did. Yes. And I do. <laughs> and I do. Uh, the scene in which the Rocketeer flies around inside the ballroom was to be a much more elaborate scene, but was cut due to budget issues. Yes. So the movie was getting too expensive because yes. I did find like he just he didn't really go anywhere. Like he he spins around a couple of times. He he, he, he does a couple of laps and then he goes through the the glass ceiling. Yeah. He he sort of hovers above the tables, and as he goes across the tables, the flames sort of blow up things on the table and things go off but but yet his legs and his boots and his pants remain unseen yeah that's true I, I just found watching that scene it just it left me wanting and then reading up afterwards hearing that they ran out of money oh well that makes sense then because it didn't feel like a whole scene yeah i did read that too and i, I agree with that i think they were saving the big the big scene for the third act or the final act and that's when you've got the the blimps the Zeppelin? The Zeppelins, that's it. You know, who, is, who doesn't love a big oh, Zeppelin with some always, Nazis? <laughs> honestly, when Matt Reeves, you know, he puts out his new Batman movie with Robert Pattinson, I want Gotham to have Zeppelins. Yes, just for the sake of having Zeppelins. In just the have them. Just have them. Uh, the, the ending was great, I thought. It was a real um, big, big set piece with, with fights on and inside the Zeppelin. It's, it's high risk, you know, Zeppelins are... F- Full of hydrogen, which yep. is highly flammable. And you've got a guy with got a jetpack, jet which has got back. flames coming out the back. You've got people firing left and right. Yeah, it's yeah, great stuff. Yeah, no, I, I really did like the third act. What do you think to how he first revealed himself? I like how they structured it so the media was there because it was like a big a big event. You was going to have Sakor dressed as the clown, but it's Jonathan Kent from uh, not Smallville from Lois and Clark. Mm-hmm. Eddie Jones, he goes he up goes there instead. Up in the plane. Good performance from him. And then that's the big heroic reveal. So that's Christopher Reeve saving Lois and capturing the helicopter. That's that moment. Only nowhere near that scale. It was a good introduction. I think it, it sort of balanced a nice sense of drama and. Uh, Danger and they with, played with a bit, with of, it. With it was a bit, a bit of comedy and yeah, drama. Yeah, it was a bit silly how his head crashed through the bottom of the plane. And some of it, though, if if you do look at the comic, there, there's some scenes that actually lifted straight from the comic. Um, when he crashes into the wing, um, he's from the comic because he misjudges. He's never used the rocket pack before, so he's finding his way. He's, he's, he's all over the shop, and it's, it's, it makes for uh, tense drama with with a bit of bit of humour there. With people like to you know have a laugh. I remember at the cinema. It, in the that first time I saw it, 
that was getting big laughs. I mean, that's interesting, though, because you've obviously got a different perspective to me watching mm. it with an audience. Yes. Well, that's good to hear. I liked how when it's revealed to everybody that Neville Sinclair is working with the Nazis, that the gangsters turned on him. I do like that as well. Yeah, which apparently is something that happened in real life. Mm. There's a bit of a backstory they cut from the film for time. Uh, the gangster, um, his character in the film, he apparently served in the army, in the armed forces, so he was very anti-Nazi. So as soon as he found out that the guy he was working for was a Nazi, he had no problem joining the feds. I did like that. Um, the soundtrack, we have James Horner in the score. Yep. Very, it's got a classic sound, heroic. The main title I like especially, and we get it to play out the movie as well. I like it. It's, I did. It works. It, it, it's appropriate score for the film. And this is James Horner who went on to do Titanic and Avatar and various other projects. So we touched briefly on the legacy of the movie earlier. From the beginning of the process of making The Rocketeer, creator Stevens and screenwriters Danny Bilson and Paul DeMio envisioned it as the first entry of a trilogy. Disney in particular hopes the film would carry in vain similar to Indiana Jones. I think I've mentioned that many times already. Uh, both Campbell and Connolly were contracted for sequels. Campbell for two more and Connolly for one more. With the film's disappointing box office performance, plans for a sequel were halted in July 1991. So that would have been not long after it left the not cinema. Not long after, yeah. yeah it's it's kind of cool to think even back then they were looking at legacy of film and you know trilogies and whatnot. And if it, if it does well, then they'll... You know, already have the things in motion for the sequel. That's a good point, actually, because like nowadays, like they're, they're planning a trilogy, like they're not yeah. planning a movie, and yeah, no. back then that's what they were looking to do with the Rocketeer. I guess we have things like Star Wars to thank for that, and Indiana Jones trilogy. I've lost track of how many times we brought up Indiana yeah. Jones. Yeah. A lot, I'd say. But yeah, it's. This movie, this this is all you got until the the cartoon. But as a movie, if you were going to rate it, this movie, I love this film. It's got its faults, I guess, um, that are very much indicative of when it was made. But they're forgivable little things, so it doesn't affect my generous high score of four and a half. Four and a half. Wow. I think. That is the highest score you have given on this podcast. I think it might be. I, I really do have a, a, a fondness for this film for many reasons. It's just it's just a classic. Yeah, like I said earlier, I've gone from finding this movie boring as a kid to more engaging as an adult. I think if they were to continue it and make a second and third, then maybe it had gone in a more enjoyable direction for me. It does a good job of setting up the character in the world. I think the cast are really good in this. Billy Campbell is the Rocketeer. I'm glad that it's coming back for that Disney show. But I'm not going to come in as high as you like. I did like it more than when I watched it all those years ago. But for me, not too low. I'm going to come in at a 3.5. And this movie just has so much charm and yeah it has a lot working for it and it is a genuine disappointment that they were not able to continue i agree the series. i would have loved to have seen a sequel i think for me it's it's a classic comic book film made when comic book films weren't in vogue 
and it, it retains charm for that. Well, I and I would earlier. recommend it to anyone that was a comic book fan to check out Rocketeer. Yeah, definitely. And I'll recommend it to anybody who has watched Captain America, the first Avenger, enjoyed it, check out The Rocketeer. Because not only is it the same director, it's it's the tone. Like, I think there's similarities between Captain America, the first movie, and The Rocketeer. I agree with that. I did read that there was a link between the two films, Rocketeer and The First Avenger. That that was the reason why Joe Johnson got the gig. And you can see it. Yeah. You can see it's it. It's almost like his audition tape for why he should be the director of Captain America. So there you go. If you haven't watched The Rocketeer already, apologies, we've spoiled it. <laughs> but if you like Captain America, The First Avenger, go back and watch The Rocketeer. That's it for our episode all about The Rocketeer. If you want to contact us about this episode or request a topic for an upcoming show, you can find us on Facebook as Sounds Like Comics Podcast. Damien, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. As always, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Uh, Billy Connolly. Nope. <laughs> Not Billy Connolly. <laughs> Jennifer Connolly.